Would you join me in prayer here as we turn to the Word of God this morning? Our God, we do come, and we are glad to be gathered as your people. We are thankful that we can assemble in the name of Christ, that we've been called from this world, we've been called through the gospel of Christ, and you've brought us together as the church. We thank you that you assemble people, your, your people, into local gatherings, and, and we can live out what it means to be believers. And Lord, even as you gather us into various gatherings, we thank you for the fellowship we can share across churches, across congregations. I pray that you would bless this church, bless this church to be a light to this community. Bless all of these saints to be holy and to be seeking you. And Lord, we pray that as we open your word now, that you would teach us through it. Help me to be just a a clear conveyor of what you have already spoken. Give us all tender hearts and ready ears. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. It is good to be back uh, here. I was uh, here preaching, well, here with this body in a different location last September. And that was the day that uh, there was a meeting where this building was announced. Um, and so providentially, it was really a blessing for, for Gabe in that I was able to do the preaching and he was able to do the, the realty, um, all, the, all the busy work that goes into buying a building that weekend. Um, and it's really exciting to see you all gathered here. It's exciting to see what's been done with this place. Um, and, and just excited to see how God will, will bless uh, this congregation into the future. Well, it is Mother's Day, and Mother's Day is kind of both a, a joy and a challenge for many. Now, for many, I, I trust this day will bring fond memories of your childhood, of seasons of child rearing. Maybe you're right in the middle of it. Um, me and my wife are certainly in the middle of it with our four busy kids from nine to three. Um, and yet for others, maybe this time brings sorrow. Maybe remembering a mother or grandmother that's now gone. Maybe it brings sorrow thinking of a child who died prematurely. For some, maybe it brings some acute regrets. You know, thinking about the the mother you didn't have, the mother that, you know, didn't live and act as she should have, or the daughter you weren't, or the son you weren't to your mother, and it brings hard memories. You know, we all have a family history, we all have bright spots and, and less bright spots in our family tree. Are there some spots in your family tree that you'd rather not be told that you'd rather not be public knowledge. They're kind of embarrassing after all. Maybe we think that such failures are too great for God to redeem for his glory. But might it be that such embarrassing episodes, such, such history is actually God's testament of his gracious work in saving you and, and making you his child. Our past is God's display of His glorious redemption. 
We're going to consider today from Joshua chapter 2. You know, maybe on Mother's Day we often turn to the Hannahs and the Marys and the Ruths. Well, today we're going to turn to Rahab. But we're going to see as we look at the account of Rahab that God redeems human failure in order to display His amazing grace. That's the main point. God redeems human failure to display His amazing grace. Now, as we consider the account of Rahab, primarily from Joshua chapter 2 today, and then we're also going to look at Joshua 6 and Matthew 1, we'll look at six stages of this account of Rahab. Now, Joshua 2 comes to us with Israel standing on the cusp of the promised land. You know, their, their, their toes are getting wet in the Jordan River as they're waiting to go in and conquer the land. Now, 40 years before this, some other spies had been sent in. And that Caleb and Joshua thought, you know, God would give it to them. They trusted God's promises, but the other spies said nothing but, oh, it's scary, we can't do this, it won't happen. And so they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years until that entire generation, save for two, died off. And yet here they are once again, ready to enter. And as we read this account, just kind of to to note, the account will give us kind of the, the action, and then it'll go back and give us the details that led up to that action. So there's kind of this back and forth uh, reality going on in the text here. So we'll consider five stages of this account. Number one, Rahab deflects the spies. I'm going to read this piece by piece as we go through this narrative today. Verses 1 through 7 of Joshua chapter 2. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially, the, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab, and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, men came to me, but I did not know where they come, came. They were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid out in, in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Rahab deflects the king's spies. Again, Joshua was sending spies even as Moses had years before. And so he as they're readying to go in and conquer the land, he says these 
It sends these spies in to gather intel on their first target city of Jericho. Now, Jericho at the time was a formidable walled city right across the banks of the Jordan River. And it tells us that these spies came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. Now, the text is very careful in its wording to let us know that there is no implicit misconduct in the text. It says they went into her house and lodged there. And yet, strategically, going to such a house would have been a normal place for traveling men to have gone, and thus likely would have been less less likely to gain suspicion from those who are watching for potential spies. It also would have been a good place to gather intel on that city, as Rahab would have been talking to lots of different people. And so she could share what she knew with them. She already would have been on the margins of society. Now, their cover is blown in verses 2 through 3. The king of Jericho hears that these men had come and had suspicions of them being spies. They were, evid- they were identified as foreigners. These were not just men traveling to a house of ill repute. They were Hebrew spies. And so the king goes and, and sends his men and demands that they give them up. But Rahab shrewdly gives cover to the spies. In verses 4 through 5, she validates part of the story. Yes, there were some men that came here. You saw, right? And yet she deflects with a lie and sends them on a spinning tail trying to get them on a futile chase and even kind of encourages them. You know, you're hot on your heels. They just left. Get after them quickly and you'll catch them. The deception was effective. The Israelite spies stayed hidden for the time as the pursuers rapidly departed trying to catch their prey. Now what do we make of Rahab's lie? I don't mean to make this a whole you know, ethics uh, class right now, but what do we make of Rahab's lie? You know, clearly in the book of Hebrews she is commended, but what do we make of the lie that she tells? Can this be reconciled with God's command against lying? Must we somehow make this a holy act in itself? Now, it should be noted that there are times where we are not always obligated to tell the whole truth to everyone. There are times where it is right to hold your tongue. Not everyone deserves all of the truth if they intend evil with that truth. But that's not the same as lying. A non-answer is not the same as a positive lie. Now, some have argued that in the state of war, lies are justified for the purpose of protecting God's plan and deflecting this pagan king in this particular case. 
think uh, John Calvin has some good wisdom for us as he reflects on this text and reflects on God's commands against lying. He says, as, fal- as to the falsehood, we must admit that though it was done for a good purpose, it was not free from fault. For those who hold what is called a dutiful lie to be altogether excusable do not sufficiently consider how precious truth is in the sight of God. Therefore, although our purpose be to assist our brethren to consult for their safety and relieve them, it never can be lawful to lie, because that cannot be right which is contrary to the nature of God. And God is truth. And still... The act of Rahab is not devoid of the praise of virtue, although it is not spotlessly pure. You know, we, we don't need to condone the lie to commend Rahab's faith. You know, she didn't act perfectly, but she acted from faith. This is not an excuse. This is not a, a proof text for why it's okay for us to lie. God is truth and he loves truth. So first, the first stage of this account is Rahab deflects the king's men. But secondly, the second stage of this account is Rahab confesses faith in the God of the spies. And you'll notice with the progression of these stages how Rahab is brought closer and closer in to the people of God. We see this in verses 8-14. through Rahab confesses faith in the God of the spies. Verse 8, before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, so this is giving us background information, okay? This, is, this happened before the king's spies came. And she said to the men, I know that the Lord, I know Yahweh, has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us. And that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how Yahweh dried up the waters of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted And there was not a spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord, for Yahweh your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and my mother, my brothers and my sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the, men who said to her, and the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death, if you do not tell this business of ours. Then, when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Rahab confesses faith in the God of the spies. Again, this is giving us background information prior to the king's men coming. But then you hear this confession of Rahab in verse 9 and onward. I know 
that the Lord, I know that Yahweh has given you the land. She understood that Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, had allotted this land to Israel. It's interesting that Rahab, this this prostitute from Jericho, knew the covenant name of Israel's God. You know, the, the, the great I am, the I will be what I will be. She knew his name and she feared him. She, she confesses that fear had fallen on them at the hearing of God's mighty works as Israel was brought out of Egypt and they heard of the great signs. They heard of the sea being parted before them. Now, if, if God can part the Red Sea, the Jordan River would be no obstacle. You know, still to this day, rivers are obstacles to armies. If you, if you look at the Ukrainian conflict, rivers are still obstacles to great armies. But if God can part the Red Sea, the Jordan is just a little trickle of water. It's nothing to God. And Yahweh had defeated the kings of the Amorites. And if God could defeat them, no one could stand before Him if He was on the march. She tells us that the inhabitants of Jericho knew that they were doomed. The the fear had fallen on them. There's no courage in any man. They're shaking in their boots. They're melting before the God of Israel. Consider in verse 11 this, this incredible confession of faith. You know, remember who this lady is. And yet, consider her confession of faith. For the Lord your God, He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. She knew that Yahweh was the supreme God powerful over all the pagan gods. Over the pantheon of Canaanite deities, He was supreme. There was no other God before Him. He was exclusively God. He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. And he is sovereignly God. He is God in the heavens and on earth. You know, the, the, Canaanite, the, the Canaanite deities all had their little local, regional territory, so they thought. You, know, you had one God who was in control of the harvest and another who was in control of the rain. and you know, they, they all had their, their job to do. She confesses that Yahweh, He's over it all. He's sovereign. One commentator said that thus we read these words coming from Rahab's mouth. When we read these words coming from Rahab's mouth, we cannot escape the implication she was doing far more than merely trying to save her skin or that of her family. She was acknowledging that this God she had heard about was the one and only true God. 
the only one out of dozens that she as a good Canaanite knew about who was worthy of worship and allegiance. She's not merely saying, I'm scared, help me. She's saying, I trust the God of Israel. I believe upon the God of Israel. The book of Hebrews chapter 11, verse 31. It says, by faith, Rahab the prostitute. It's interesting in Hebrews, it reminds us of who she was. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. She did this as an act of faith, as an act of confidence in the one true God. Hebrews 11.1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. she, She had heard about God's mighty acts. And on the basis of hearing who God was, she believed and she responded. See in verses 12 through 14 that her act of faith secures deliverance for her family. She asked them in light of her kindness that her family too would be spared. Her act of faith brought safety not only to herself, but also to her family. Just an application there. Does not our confidence in Christ bring blessing to others? Does not a walk of faith bring help to those around us? And this, this promise was secured on the condition of ongoing secrecy. Verse 14, Our life for yours even to death. You know, they make this vow that, you know, I, I deserve death if we don't keep our end of the promise. But then it was conditioned upon her not telling. You know, hey, guess who I found? Here they are. Now, we might ask the question, okay, what about those verses? Turn with me back to Deuteronomy 7. So they make a covenant with her. They make the solemn promise. Deuteronomy chapter 7. I'm going to read verses 1 through 5. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. 
But thus you shall deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their asherim and burn their carved images with fire. So there's this prohibition about making covenants with the people of the land. So how do we square this with Rahab and the covenant that the spies made with her? Well, I think the foundational difference here is that Rahab through faith, is no longer a follower of the Canaan pagan deities. You know, it it highlights there in Deuteronomy that they're going to follow after their gods. Well, who is Rahab's god at this point? It's the true God. It's Yahweh. So, so, So she had the same faith as Israel at this point. The covenant was not being made with a foreign pagan nation, but a genuine believer in Yahweh. I'm going to read John Calvin once more. He said, Rahab is dwelling with her people in a fortified city, and yet she commits her life to her terrified guests. Just as if they had already gained possession of the land and had full power to save or destroy as they pleased. This voluntary surrender was, in fact, the very same as embracing the promise of God and casting herself on his protection. Rahab believed the God of the spies. She believed in your God and mine, the true God. That leads us to the third scene where Rahab sends the spies out safely. Verses 15 through 24. It says, Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, Go into the hills, or the pursuers will encounter you, and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward you may go your way. The men said to her, We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we have come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord on the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father and your mother, your brothers, and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors... Of your house into the streets, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your word, so let it be. So then, then she sent them away. And they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord to the window. So she sends out the spies safely. Now, ancient cities were often built with a double wall. There'd be an outer and inner, and you'd have this extra space that could be used for houses and storage and things like that. And then when it came time for a siege, if you had an army coming against you, you could take a bunch of rocks and dirt and basically fill in the space between those two walls. 
which Jericho apparently did not do in this case. And so she, living in the wall of the city, living between the inner and outer wall, has access to the outside. Now it's interesting as we just jump ahead in our thinking when Jericho does finally fall by a mighty act of God, and the walls fall flat, is it not interesting that there's one section that must not have fallen flat? The section that, Jer- that, that Rahab and her family were in? Now the gates of the city had been shut tight, and so she devises an escape plan through the, through the window in her, her residence on the wall. And she, at this point, now you have to remember a little... Uh, Israel geography, you have the Jordan River running from the Sea of Galilee down to the Dead Sea. And between that, you have the Great Rift Valley. Now, Israel at this point is camped on the east side of the Jordan. Jericho is just on the west side of the Jordan. And then you go a few miles from that, you know, in both directions, and there's mountain ranges. And so she tells them, go west, go into the Judean hills. Because these people are looking for you out in the plain. They're chasing you back to the Jordan because that's where they think you went. So wait them out. And then once they give up, once they come back after a couple days, well then you can safely go back to your own camp. So she has this this elaborate plan for how they can safely make it back to the camp of Israel. They have this, this sign, this, this covenant sign, if you will, of this scarlet cord that would be wrapped and hung from the window. Some have suggested that this is something of a, a, the, the Passover coming to Rahab's house. Even as, as they spread the blood over their mantles and the destruction was avoided from any house that had the, the scarlet over the door, she too was spared with this cord. In verses 20 and 21, they affirm and enact these vows. And Rahab's faith in Israel's God was in, affirmed by her enduring actions. You know, she not only made this profession, she not only made this promise, she not only protected the spies, But she hung this cord in hopes, in confident expectation that she would be spared in the coming destruction. And then in verses 24, 22 and onward, Then they departed and went into the hills and remained there three days until the pursuers returned. And the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. Then the two men returned, they came from the hills, passed over and came to Joshua the son of Nun, and they told him all that had happened. And they said to Joshua, truly the Lord has given all the land into our hand, and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. They heard the accounts from Rahab that they were melting. They were confident that God was giving them the land. And they brought this report and what a, what a contrast to that report that was brought 40 years before. Rahab sends the spies out safely. Fourthly, 
Rahab is brought in to Israel. Rahab is brought in to Israel. Jump with me over to Joshua chapter 6. Verse 17. Now you remember they, they march around the city once a day. Now, when I was a kid in Sunday school, I imagined that the city would probably be huge. You know, I, I grew up on the outskirts of Minneapolis. You know, how would you march around a city seven times in one day on the last day? Well, you know, ancient walled cities weren't that big. Some of them were just the size of a few football fields. Well, they, they march around once a day, day after day, and then on the final day, they march around at seven times, and they're to blow their trumpets. But we pick it up at verse 17. And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to destruction to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all those who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. Jump down to verse 22. But the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua, but to the two men who spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belong to her as you swore. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and her mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it, only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and of iron, they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab, the prostitute, and her father's household, and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day. Because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. At first, they are protected. They're saved. At first, they are put outside of the camp. They would have been ceremonially unclean. And yet you see in verse 25 that she has lived in Israel to this day. She was brought in and included among Israel. Rahab is brought into Israel. That leads us to our fifth and final stage in this account. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, verses 2 through 5. I'll read 2 through 6. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, 
and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Ruth, by, sorry, by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. The final stage of this account of Rahab is that Rahab becomes a mother. We see here in Matthew chapter 1, 2 through 6, that Rahab was not only brought in to Israel, she was married to a man named Solomon, who had a baby named Boaz. Now, Boaz, one day late in life, would see a young foreign woman, a Moabite widow, out in his field. And he would take compassion on her. And as it turns out, he was a kinsman redeemer. And he would marry her, and they would bear Obed, and Obed would bear Jesse, and Jesse would bear David, and David would have a far-off grandson named Jesus. Isn't it amazing that God would use Rahab the prostitute? Not merely to bring his people into the promised land, but to bring a Messiah into the world. You know, we, we, read, we read Joshua 2. And we don't see that right there, do we? But we look at the whole story of Scripture and there's more going on. You read, read the book of Ruth. You know, go, go read that this afternoon and see how God's working to bring His Messiah. Isn't it amazing that God, through this prostitutes faith would bring us a savior god saved a former pagan prostitute and through her lineage send one who is god in human flesh who would then suffer as a substitute in his death on the cross for us he would bear the very wrath of god the very Wrath of God that was due to Rahab and to Ruth and to every one of his descent, every one of his parents and grandmothers. He would die to bear the wrath of God on all who would ever believe on him before and after he came. The one substitute for all time who could bear the sin of man. I ask you today, have you turned and trusted on Christ? Have you trusted the One that God sent into the world as a Redeemer? Have you repented of sin? Have you looked to Him in a confident faith, knowing that He's the only One who can save you for eternity? In the book of Hebrews, The end of chapter 11, we considered what it said about Rahab already. 
but it makes some conclusions Pick it up at verse 39, and we're going to read into chapter 12. There's not really a break here in the text. There's a therefore, which is building upon what it says in 11. Rahab was commended for her faith, evidenced in hiding the spies. It says in verse 39, And all these... Though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. See, Rahab needed her far off great, 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 great grandson to come and save her. Apart from us, They should not be made perfect. Rahab had no salvation apart from the Messiah. And you and I have no salvation apart from Him also. Then we pick it up in verse 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He endured the cross. He suffered in our place that we might have redemption. Saints, Rahab stands in God's redemptive history as a trophy of his amazing grace. You know, you'll speak to people who say, well, I've done all this. Can God ever forgive me? Yes. God's grace comes freely. It comes fully to all who would look to Christ. She stands as a trophy of God's grace. God can use you. We we look at how God used Rahab and the history of His redemption. But he's working through her act of faith. We're reminded that God can work through us, through all of our weakness and failure to display His amazing grace. He can use us to reach the lost. He can use us to serve Him and to bless and, and, and spread the, the renown of Christ in this world. God can redeem your past failures. God is using those to display His power to redeem. God works remarkable things through His people. If you faithfully receive and apply God's truth to your life, you may not understand what God is doing now, but God is working. You know, there's a bigger story going on here in the account of Rahab. Isaiah 55, 10-11 says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth that shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. You know, God gives us His word to go proclaim God can use us in all of our weakness to go preach Christ. 
And God uses his word. Now, sometimes God uses that word to bring further judgment, and other times God uses that word to save people. But God's word does not return empty. Just a, another point of application. We must never revel in past sin. And yet at the same time, we recognize that our unredeemed history before we come to the cross is a testimony to the redemptive power of Christ. Now, I was in this uh, campus ministry in college, and, and there would be like testimonies that would be shared. And sometimes the testimonies would be something to the effect of, yeah, I used to party every weekend, and it was amazing, and it was fun. I did whatever I wanted, and then I got saved. Now it's not so fun, but I'm saved. You know, it's kind of this, this reveling in, in the excitements of, of all the past sin with no recognition of how destructive it was and leading to an eternity in hell. And, and while that ought not to be our testimony, we must never revel in past sin. We recognize that the sin that God saves us from is a testament of his saving power. And we give glory to him for it. You know, we're never to seek sin so that grace may abound. Romans 6, 1, what shall we say? Are we to continue to sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? I assure you, God has plenty trophies of his grace without you trying to willingly contribute to it. And yet... The fact that he has saved you as a sinner displays how great he is as a Savior. To all eternity, the nailed-scarred hands of Christ will stand as a reminder that he has redeemed us from our sin and our rebellion by laying down his life to pay the penalty for our sin. And so for all eternity, we who believe on him are trophies of his amazing grace. Revelation 5, 9 through 10, I'll close with this. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people from God, for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. God has done an amazing work of redemption. Let's pray, and then I'll pass it back to those who will close out the service. Our God, as we consider this account of Rahab the harlot, we are astounded at your kindness in salvation. We are astounded that Christ would take our sin upon himself and bear it on the cross and be our substitute. And we worship him, we praise him for what he has done. We are astounded that you would save sinners like us. Help us to realize, to recognize the gravity of our sin. Recognize our need of a Savior. Lord, please help us as we go forth into this world to be proclaiming the gospel of Christ. 
Help us to go to those who are on the outskirts of society. Lord, those who desperately need a Savior yet are lost and dealing with the the destructive powers of sin. Give us compassion to go to them and preach Christ. Lord, if you can save Rahab the harlot through faith in the coming promises, you still today can save those in desperate need of a Savior around us. So let us go and proclaim Christ. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.